an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Can science demonstrate uh, the existence of God? What is a Catholic to think? Well, can science demonstrate the existence of God? Yes. What's a Catholic to think? That science can demonstrate the existence of God. Cue up. Oh, no. <laughs> Supper time, no, don't queue up back. No, I, I've got a little footnote here. Actually, what I was trying to do busily is rewrite my lecture in light of what everyone else had said. I realized that is a foolish task, so I'm going to give you the one that I actually wrote or bought off the internet. No, I wrote this. Okay, it's not that simple, obviously. You should be aware of that from listening to what's going on so far. Uh, things are deep and complex. Lots of distinctions have to be made. You'll probably see where I... Uh, get entangled with other presenters on particular points, which I'll emphasize loudly with a wink, uh, so you'll be able to see, okay, well, what do we want to talk about afterwards? So it isn't that simple as you might have guessed, although when I'm finished explaining why it's not that simple, we'll have something like that kind of an answer. So can science demonstrate the existence of God? What's a Catholic to think? We're going to, instead of going to specific kind of arguments, think through uh, the, th the things on a wider level uh, and in some respects a deeper level, a moral level, a psychological level, as well as the, the way that we have been working through things. And of course, since it's a theology section, a theological level. So you'll get all of that for the price of a single lecture. First, let's see why it might appear to be that simple. Uh, in the first Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution of the faith, the church declared as a matter of dogma. Holy Mother Church holds and teaches that God, the source and end of all things, can be known with certainty from the consideration of created things by the natural power of human reason. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. And obviously the council is referring back to St. Paul, uh, words that we already uh, heard from this Bible stolen from Franciscan. <laughs> I'll put that back, Jay. He's still having a little, he's a convert, so he's got a little conscience work to do, but that's all right. <laughs> You'll get there. Yeah, <laughs> kids. Okay. <laughs> the Catechism of the Catholic Church maintains the same thing, quoting a paragraph 36, the words of Vatican I that I've just mentioned. And in paragraph 50, uh, we hear a repeat of the assertion, by natural reason, man can know God with certainty on the basis of his works. At paragraph 38, the Catechism quotes approvingly the words of Pius XII from his encyclical Humanae Generis. Human reason by its own natural force and light can arrive at a true and certain knowledge of the one personal God who by his providence watches over and governs the world. That's a pretty strong statement. Then it states at paragraph 39, in defending the ability of human reason to know God, the church is expressing her confidence in the possibility of speaking about him to all men and with all men, and therefore of dialogue with other religions, with philosophy and science, as well as with unbelievers and atheists. So the church takes the natural ground of our understanding of nature to be a kind of common ground, even with, with atheists. Of course, we can't fail to mention uh, St. Thomas's Five Ways from the Summa Theologia, where St. Thomas stoutly defends the ability to demonstrate by natural reason alone that God exists 
a demonstration that takes place through his effects, that is, through his works, that is, through nature. Again, being very pointed, through nature. So to put it in the most forceful terms, a Catholic must hold that it is possible to demonstrate the existence of God by natural reason, and that such a demonstration is done through the things God has made, that is, through a consideration of nature. That's what you would get from all the official documents. And I mean must in the real sense of is obligated to. Since the First Vatican Council declared unambiguously, if anyone says that the one true God, our Creator and Lord, cannot be known with certainty from the things that have been made by the natural light of reason, let him be anathema. Now, you don't want to be anathema, okay? I mean, just for tax purposes, you don't want to be anathema. That's pretty straightforward, right? End of talk, cue up. No, it's not. It's not straightforward, actually. Now for a little confusion, or perhaps a lot of it. I've been purposely letting some things out that which we now need to let back in again. First, when I said that a Catholic must hold that it is possible to demonstrate the existence of God by natural reason, that is not quite the same thing as saying that science can demonstrate the existence of God. Not quite the same thing. I don't, I don't know how they're related at this point in my lecture. Maybe I'll, I'll know a few pages hence, but it's not quite the same thing. It's one thing to say that human reason can demonstrate the existence of God, and another thing to say that any particular science can demonstrate the existence of God. That is, it's one thing to say that we can have a philosophical proof of God's existence, and another to say that we can have a neurobiological or a botanical or a microbiological or an archaeological proof of God's existence. But if you got any of those, you'd go New York Times bestseller. Right? Think of that, the botany proves God exists. It, I mean, whether it was a good argument or not. Uh, but no, that's not what it's saying. So something like this very distinction between philosophy and science is made by the catechism itself at paragraph 31. Created in God's image and called to know and love him, the person who seeks God discovers certain ways of coming to know him. These are called proofs of the existence of God, not in the sense of proofs in the natural sciences, but rather in the sense of converging and convincing arguments, which allow us to attain certainty about truth. So now you've got what appears to be a pretty radical distinction between what philosophy does and the kind of demonstration that occurs in science. So we're gonna, we'll come back to that point. Okay, so now we, we move from, it looks like science, that's got to be demonstrating the existence of God. By gosh, I don't want to be anathema to, well now I'm not sure what's going on. Okay. Second, I've also left something out of the authoritative quotations that have literally adulterated them. Uh, the complete quote taken from Pope Pius uh, XII's Humanity Generous and reproduced in full in the Catechism, paragraph 37, makes it clear that Though absolutely speaking, human reason by its own natural force and light can arrive at a true and certain knowledge of the one personal God, still there are not a few obstacles to prevent reason from making efficient and fruitful use of its natural ability. The human intellect in gaining the knowledge of such truths is hampered by the activity of the senses and the imagination and by evil passions arising from original sin. 
Hence, men easily persuade themselves in such matters that what they do not wish to believe is false or at least doubtful. Now, these are serious difficulties. Sounded like we were going to slick ourselves right into a demonstration. Now we've got some things we need to worry about uh, that, that have been laid out officially. So let, let's look at them. These are serious difficulties. While reason can demonstrate the existence of God, human reason is human. That's the first point. And we must struggle to know immaterial truths using the senses and imagination. Now, you might think about this strange fact. If we put it a little more strangely, uh, the telescope costs millions and millions of dollars. It's really a big eyeball. That's what it is. You're trying to see further than you can normally see. In a microscope, you're trying to see something you couldn't see. Human beings need to see things. That's a, that's in, in one, a very serious limitation. Even when, we send, when, even when we try to do it by other means uh, than visible light on, on uh, uh, various kinds of telescopes, to, it, we, you know, uh, certain kinds of scientists can understand just raw data belched out. But generally, they try to re get it into something that looks like a picture again. So we can see it. We want to see things. But in a way, that's a limitation. So human beings have to see in order to believe, even when they have what seems like a, a perfect theoretical construct. I've got uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. They wanted to see light deflected around that perfect eclipse. Then it was, ah, okay. Then it was some kind of a confirmation. So demonstration is not easy because the things in nature are extraordinarily complex in both directions, in the bigger macroscopic and in the microscopic. And when we try to get to those things, uh, not only do we have trouble with what's in front of us figuring things out, but also what is smaller and what is larger. Okay, So if demonstration has anything to do with those things, as we're saying the heavens declare the glory of God, microbiology declares the glory of God, it's not going to be an easy kind of a demonstration. Now, on top of all that, we've got sin. And I think we should not forget about that in, these, in, in questioning how it is a demonstration may or may not function effectively. Okay? And as we'll ultimately see, why or why, why or why, why, I'll put it this way, why or why not would somebody accept the demonstration? More importantly, what kind of cosmology do people want to find vindicated? Okay? Think on this, this is a famous confession of Algis Huxley. Now, I'm sure you've heard it before, I'll read it again. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning, consequently assumed it had none, and was, a and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. That is, uh, finding, by this he means I, I wanted to find a world that did not have an intelligent cause but came about through entirely random processes, therefore had no intrinsic meaning. It was accidental in that sense. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why personally he should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless, meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom." End quote. 
That does not mean that people who disagree with you today or any time about the existence of God, you can therefore declare to be sexual libertines or perverts or something like that, but you can't get around the fact that our distorted passions will want to see the world in a particular way. And it may very well be that there, is a, there are kinds of cosmological views or views of nature that would exclude God, therefore allow certain things that this or that person wanted to be without that kind of nasty thing above there uh, with moral import. Now, those are what I pulled out from uh, Humanity Generous, okay? So, demonstration, oh, it's not easy. Now we find out it's not easy. It's not just not easy, that sin can be involved. And since sin is something deep, it's hard to figure out how it might distort somebody's affirmation of a demonstration or a rejection of it. Now, if that weren't enough, I'd like to add another obstacle, which is extremely important for the kinds of arguments that you've heard over the last two days. Uh, as I think it's the, the, the extremely important for our present situation, not only in this conference, but also at this time. One of the greatest obstacles is a view of nature or reason or science that makes demonstration of God's existence impossible. It is such a great obstacle because a perfectly well-intentioned believer could hold the view and not know it. That well-intentioned believer will then be forced to deny that we can know God exists by reason through nature and will have to assume some kind of irrational fideism where the supernatural is in no way connected to the natural or sometimes have a radical split between metaphysics and uh, philosophy of nature and science. Okay, so there's several ways to take care of it, but what I'm trying to point to this it's possible to set up a view of the universe in which God's existence is not demonstrable. Now, I want to spend the rest of, uh, most of the rest of this talk spelling out uh, these complexities, but I'm going to begin with this last, uh, last obstacle to the demonstration of God's existence, that is the holding of a view of nature or reason that makes demonstration of God's existence impossible. Uh, if you wanted to connect it to anyone's lecture, you would probably connect it to Ed Fazer's. Okay, that is, there's something, there's a radically defective view, it has these effects on people who hold it psychologically. I'm going to illustrate this point by turning away from God and to human beings. So we're looking at the question, can you have a view of nature which makes the demonstration of something that you do know about <laughs> impossible? Okay, we'll lay God to the side, let God off the hook for a while and say, let's look at a view of nature which makes something which you want you have to affirm impossible and show how that view of nature makes it impossible. Here is, a, a, we might as well be selling this guy's book, Stephen Hawking's Grand Design. <laughs> Greatest hits among uh, the exceedingly intelligent Stephen Hawking states matter-of-factly that the molecular basis of biology shows that biological processes are governed by the laws of physics and chemistry and therefore are as determined as the orbits of the planets. It seems hard to imagine how free will can operate if our behavior is determined by physical law, so it seems that we are no more than biological machines and that free will is just an illusion. Hawking then argues that, in fact, it is impossible, actually, to, to calculate the determined path of a person's actions because that would depend on knowing the initial states of the thousand trillion trillion molecules in the person's body. 
In other words, I know all your actions are determined, but you have so many molecules in your body, I can't do the calculations on you. Therefore, I can't, I can't uh, predict what your actions will be, even though I can assume they are entirely determined. Now, notice what that kind of an argument is. It's act, you can't disprove it. Okay? It's assumed. Here's the point. Given the scientific assumption, it's impossible to prove the existence of free will to Stephen Hawking. It's, it's actually impossible to prove it. That, and I'm, we don't even have to talk about God now. Just talk about whether he can choose, you know, what do we have out here? Turkey rather than ham. Okay? So given the scientific assumption, it's impossible to prove the existence of free will to Stephen Hawking, even though free will is something we experience every day as real, and so does he. Any proof offered would always be countered by Hawking with the assertion that, one, we know human beings are entirely material creatures. Two, that the laws of physics entirely determine all material activity, including all our thinking and acting. And three, that we can never actually calculate all the inner workings of our atoms, so it will always appear to us that human actions are free, even when they are not. Okay, so it doesn't matter what I go through up here. It will never convince him that there is free will. So the materialist assumption uh, makes the demonstration of free will impossible to Hawking. Now, can, you know, several people have talked about materialism from, from Jay to, uh, uh, well, actually all of us have in one way or another. We see how it's a particular kind of assumption about the nature of reality, about nature. So to the question, can science demonstrate the existence of free will, our answer, if we accept Hawking's view of science, is no. And the reason is that free will cannot exist given this view of science. Since for Hawking, his view of science is based on his deterministic view of nature, and his view of reason is also based on his view of nature, there could be no philosophical demonstration either. So notice you can't, oh yeah, but we can, we can hide in philosophy. You can't do that. You can't hide in metaphysics. It's all gone. So for him, all that would just be goofy speculation. Because reason itself is defined by his materialistic assumptions. So notice it's not just enough to say, can reason demonstrate? So what do you mean by reason? What do you mean by nature? Okay? So you've got a lot of, a lot of questions you have to figure out before you can know whether you're working through a demonstration. Let's go one step further. Francis Crick, co-discoverer of the molecular structure of DNA, goes beyond Hawking, denying not only free will, but personhood. In his astonishing hypothesis, Crick asserts right at the get-go, first words, that you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. As Lewis Carroll's Alice might have phrased it, you are nothing but a pack of neurons. Close quote. Now here's the obvious point for us. Given Francis Crick's assumptions about nature and human nature, it's impossible to prove the existence of Francis Crick. Okay? We set aside demonstrations of the existence of God. Now we're showing there's certain ways you can understand reality that you can't demonstrate the existence of free will. Now, we can't now you can't demonstrate the existence of the person who's asking you, can you demonstrate the existence of God? 
That he exists as a person is assumed to be an illusion that science dispels. Notice he experiences himself having free will, experiences himself as a person. But science dispels that. So there's a radical disjunction between science and what you can demonstrate and this illusory uh, personhood that you, you keep offering. I'm sure he offers it when they were writing him a check for the book. <laughs> what did he sign? You know? uh, so we must then ask, can a science demonstrate the existence of Francis Crick? Can science demonstrate the existence of Francis Crick? And our answer, if we accept Crick's view of science, is no. In fact, it would seem to demonstrate the non-existence of Crick. And that's an important point. So now we can ask, can I, going back to the original question, can I use science to prove the existence of God? We would have to answer, if we accepted this view of science, no, because science disproves the existence of I. This is prior to even getting to the demonstration of God. But what of God? Well, the answer, again, based on his view of science, is Crick would say, no, you can't demonstrate the existence of God for the same reason you can't demonstrate the existence of Francis Crick. So notice what's at stake. The two are intimately connected. Hawking's and Crick's view of science is based upon an entirely reductionist materialist view of nature, one that excludes the possibility of any personhood, either human or divine. So often when you have someone show that God doesn't exist and science proves it, it actually shows that the person himself does not exist. That the two go hand in hand. And since the view of nature defines what is reasonable, there can be no philosophical demonstration of the existence either of Francis Crick or God, if you accept the view of nature. Okay, so what I'm trying to get you to see is, if you, if you accept these parameters, you're, you're stuck within a place where it, even the things of ordinary experience, let alone God, cannot be demonstrated. In fact, it would seem to demonstrate the opposite. So we have to emphasize this last point here about how the, all these things fit together. The view of science, nature, and human reason are all essentially connected. I'm arguing against, in a, in a subtle McIntyrean way, I studied with Alistair McIntyre, didn't do him any good, but that's right. Um, no, it did me good, but no, it's a joke, never mind. Um, that you can't just talk about reason doing this or that, because you will have different formations of reason on radically different assumptions. And, and you have to unearth those things. So you're looking at what happens to a materialist view of reason. This is it. So science, the view of science, nature, and human reason are all essentially connected so that the philosophical demonstration and scientific demonstration are mutually dependent. Hawking and Crick are not saying, as a matter of scientific method, we exclude all but material causes as we define them, and we set aside the consideration of other causes as beyond our method. They are saying, as a matter of fact, only material causes as we understand them exist. That is, they would not allow uh, what Professor uh, Carroll did. That, that would, metaphysics would say, booga booga. You know, it's just, it has no foundation. What you're saying makes no sense at all. In other words, they're, they're, you know, my reason eats your reason in the same way my little Darwinian thing eats your, you know, Jesus fish or something. You know, this notion that you're not talking about anything and so we don't have to listen to you and so your demonstration has no effect. So we're not talking about the adequacy of a Professor Carroll's argument, what you're talking about is the mode of, of understanding that within these people make that argument make no sense at all. It doesn't, it doesn't take any hold, so it's not effective. So there's a difference between the internal consistency and power of a demonstration 
and his ability to have an effect on this or that person, depending on what their beliefs are. So that means that Hawking and Crick are holding a very particular view of science, of nature, of human nature, and again, as it turns out, reason itself. To be reasonable means to be a reductionist materialist. So notice how, and this is, uh, I didn't make this up, uh, actually he didn't make it up either, but uh, uh, Pope Benedict XVI said this, one of the main problems in modernity is the constriction of reason. Most people say, oh, well, reason is attacking faith. He said, no, the problem is reason is too small. And Chesterton said the same thing. If Chesterton and your Pope say it, <laughs> yeah, I know I'm redundant, but you know, I might as well repeat it. Okay. Now, you, uh, you obviously aren't going to be surprised to find out both Hawking and Crick are atheists, and that the reasons for their atheism are the same as for their denial of free will and personhood. So notice the demonstration of the existence of a person gets both them and God for the same reason. It's as if, you know, the, the divine punishment is, okay, if you set up a system that you can't prove God's existence, then you'll disappear as well. Okay? I really actually mean that. Material reality is the only reality for them. Material reality is entirely self-contained and entirely determined. There can be no immaterial being. No such immaterial being is needed to explain nature at all. Any such explanations would be not only redundant, uh, but, but annoying. Uh, and no alleged immaterial being could possibly interfere miraculously with entirely law-governed material nature. So that's the, those are the assumptions which define everything that they're using, reason, nature, science. So it turns out that if you accept your view of nature held by Hawking and Crick, then you cannot demonstrate the existence of free will the existence of human beings understood as persons, or the existence of God. It's not just that the demonstration of the existence of God is impossible, the, demonstrate, the demonstration of the existence of anybody is impossible. And that's obviously got to be a fundamental dis, you know, we experience ourselves as human beings and there's a whole bunch of you out there. If I come up with a view of science and reason in which you can't be demonstrated, and then I say it doesn't, it, it shows that God doesn't exist, something went wrong, okay? If that weren't enough, as actually Hawking affirms in his uh, uh, Brief History of Time, I don't have the big quote with me, but in fact, the demonstration of demonstration itself becomes impossible on this view. If our mind's activity can be reduced to the neuronal activity on our brain, and this neuronal activity is entirely determined by physical causes, there's no reason to believe that in anyone's brain, whatever configurations might happen to exist at any one time, would in some way conform to something outside the brain. There's no reason to assume that. Or to look at it another way, there's no reason to believe that a string of neuronal states or configurations or whatever might happen to be in your brain is going to image by sheer luck a demonstration that held good independently. And even if it did, in one person's brain, it would have no actual effect on changing anyone else's mind or any other person's brain state so it couldn't be an effective demonstration. Uh, because why? Well, as Crick says, uh, the, what you are, the thing you call brain or mind that does the demonstration is simply a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules determined by subatomic laws, atomic laws. Now this all might be merely amusing. Okay, gosh, you know, I'm doing a little shell game, I win, and we can all go home. Except that this view of nature, human nature, reason, and science is the dominant view at this time. That is, it still dominates. 
So we live in a particular time in which a particular view of reality, of nature, dominates, and that particular view of nature makes impossible the demonstration of the existence of God, and also free will, human personhood, and even demonstration itself. The materialist reductionist paradigm of nature and science has been very, very effective. So effective that few dare question it. Except Ed, as Ed Fazer began to question it, so did Jay begin to question it. In other words, it wasn't, we'll leave you alone and we'll do our own reasoning out here. It was, no, I think there's something went wrong down here, guys. We need to look at it. Now, the unhappy result of, of it being accepted and forming the, the, the culture so deeply, intellectually and otherwise, is that the question, can the existence of God be demonstrated, including the well-intentioned believers, especially those within the science, that question is often settled by a kind of Manichaeanism or schizophrenia. Why, no nature... I, I work with nature every day, you know, as a scientist, and I know that has nothing to do with personhood, God, or free will. That's real stuff. And then I live over here, and I've got my subjective world in which I can do philosophy and metaphysics, uh, in which I can talk about free will and free action in God, but they never go together. This one, in fact, excludes this one. Okay, so you get a kind of a schizophrenia, a kind of Manichaeanism, uh, where, uh, you know, you're oddly enough, the world is, is somehow against you or, or uh, uh, you know, opposed uh, to what you consider most essential to you. And on this view, the thing that used to be something that came up, as it were, from a study of nature, I'm going to, again, quote Professor Carroll, metaphysics has to be based on a sound philosophy of nature, which has to be obviously based on a good grasp of actual nature. Uh, that connection no longer exists. And so you have, a, you have a kind of dichotomy between metaphysics and philosophy on one side and a materialist view of nature on the other side. And that makes demonstration from the effects of God in nature impossible. Okay? Because where's nature? Is it over here? No, it's over here. Can't talk about the principles of nature as distinct from na nature because the guys over here say nature's this way. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so we, we end up being in a kind of uh, uh, reductionist, materialist paradigm of nature where people still want to believe in the existence of God, but in that paradigm there is no demonstration that can occur. Now, there is another way of dealing with this reductionist paradigm for those who want to prove the existence of God. You could choose to accept the reductionist, materialist paradigm of nature as true. Say, okay, I'll take it. And then try to demonstrate that wherever it appears to break down, wherever there is a gap in the materialist ability to explain the existence or workings of some mechanism, a way opens up for an entirely immaterial explanation that implies the existence of God. Notice what occurs here. I'll take the entire materialist view. I'll swallow the whole thing whole. But whenever there's a gap in it that cannot be explained in its own terms, then I should have some kind of a design inference. And I'm being that pointed because I'm a nasty guy. I think we can have some real debate about, about things. So in other words, you're accepting that materialist, but you're trying to find a way out. That's somewhat parallel to accepting materialism and saying, but I've got my metaphysics and you can't get me. Okay, and, and, I'm, and I'm saying, wait a second, maybe the problem is accepting this uh, view of nature as, as good and then reacting to it some way, or not as good as, as settled. Now, unfortunately, when you take this view where gaps 
where you accept the materialist or mechanist paradigm, then you look for gaps in it. The gaps are often closed by the advance of science under the paradigm. And, uh, and even when they're not, the materialists will think that, that there will, they will be. So it usually has effects on, not on people, it needs to have effects on, it, it has effects on people who already want to believe that God exists. Uh, or somebody in the science that says, I, I, don't, I, you know, I, I accept this paradigm, uh, but I don't accept what you are trying to do with it. I don't believe that gaps in whatever it is uh, from the bacterial flagellum to whatever uh, prove the existence of a designer. I, I just don't believe that. Uh, I believe uh, this paradigm will continue to be fruitful and I'll figure out it where any of the gaps go. Okay. Now I'd like to end this part of the discussion uh, after having made everybody mad uh, by making two points. Uh, first, it's possible to have a perfectly valid and effective demonstration of God's existence, but it would have no actual effect in a culture that generally held to a reductionist materialist view of nature that makes the demonstration of the existence of God impossible. So now I'm making the distinction between what people have assumed and a valid demonstration. The only way to make the valid demonstration effective, that is, so that it actually has the effect of a demonstration on others, would be to demonstrate that the actual defects of the reductionist materialist view of nature, that is, you demonstrate that it's defective. Now, I won't accept it. Now I'm going to say, I'm going to look at it. And I'm going to replace it with something that's more adequate. I think this is what Dr. Fazer was up to. I don't know whether he's back yet. There's a, he's back among the living, or at least visiting anyway. I hope you can understand how large a task this is. And that's why I think many people don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, and here, uh, well, I'll say this when I get to the end of this. How large a task this is, I'm asking for a revolution in our understanding of nature, a revolution reaching into all the sciences that affirms the achievements of science under the materialist paradigm doesn't reject them. It affirms them as achievements. And I'm not sure Ed and I agree on that. I don't know. But it, sh it also shows the insurmountable defects and offers a new account of nature and science, a superior account that moves science forward with all of its advances under the materialist paradigm. I didn't make this up either. This is actually Alistair McIntyre's notion. Of what, it, what is a how do rival incommensurable arguments combat each other by showing which argument is the better argument? Okay, so uh, 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 which one is it? Who's justice, which rationality? You find it in the back of that. It's very, very powerful. He didn't make it up either. So notice what it has to do. You can't just let it alone. You can't just point out it has some defects. You have to show why has it been so powerful then if it's fundamentally wrong? Is it really fundamentally wrong? Or is it only partially wrong? But there's a lot of good powerful, wonderful stuff that we got from it. You have to show how it was effective, where its defects are, where, and hence where it would break down as a view, and then how do you get all those wonderful things and go forward so that science actually advances. Now I'm not saying we have to have such a revolution because we want to have a paradigm of nature that allows for the demonstration of the existence of God. Like, go do this because we're really worried about demonstrating God's existence. I'm actually making a stronger and a stranger claim. 
The fact that we cannot demonstrate the existence of God from within this materialist reductionist paradigm of science is the signal defect that shows that it is wrong despite its great accomplishments. But I could have, I could have said the exact same thing about free will. That is, there's something defective about it, even though it's powerful, I need to show how. I'm going to skip that point. On to the other obstacles, and we can come back to those. There's enough in there to get people fighting for hours, and I can just quietly leave while it ends in fisticuffs, and I'll get first in line for supper. Let's look at sin. I mean, not directly at sin. Let's look at an abstract account of sin, because I think this is very important. It's overlooked. When it, you know, nobody talks about sin enough uh, 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 in relationship to this very difficulty. Again, Pope Pius XII asserted that one set of obstacles to prove the existence of God arise from original sin and more particularly from disordered passions. So it is that men easily persuade themselves in such matters that what they do not wish to believe is false or at least doubtful. And I believe it's not just a, it's not, it, an entire culture could desire to have a, a particular view of nature that would allow them to do what they wanted to do didn't just have to be one person. So let's look, at, let's look at a brief survey of the seven deadly sins. You didn't think you were going to get it? Here it comes at the end. Pride. At, can pride itself malform someone's understanding of the possibility of demonstration of God's existence? At 13 years old, Ayn Rand wrote confidently in her diary, today I decided to be an atheist. 13. She was an overachiever. She was convinced that the concept of God is degrading to men. That's her quote. Because the affirmation that God is perfect means that man can never be perfect. That's it. No God. The fact that God is defined as being more perfect than human beings was enough for her to say that God can't exist. Well, that's pride. And that decision was made. She was 13. She never went back on it. So that can be the source of somebody actually denying a, a legitimate demonstration. They'll get out of it any way they can. Envy could be one. Whereas pride is an aristocratic vice, envy is the vice to which democracies are prone, a point made so cogently by Alexis de Tocqueville in his classic Democracy in America. The notion that anybody, that is, we all equally, ought to be able to understand quite easily and without effort a proper demonstration of God's existence is wrong. Okay? Uh, the demonstration of God's existence is aristocratic in the way that demonstration in mathematics, chemistry, or physics is aristocratic, or in philosophy. It takes a lot of effort, <laughs> knowledge and ability. In other words, none of the things that we did were like, hey, you, you put this on a bumper sticker and, you know, go cruising on everyone behind you will go, God exists. Whew. God exists, you know. And you're going to work that way. They're very hard to understand. It takes a lot of effort, okay? So the validity of God's existence or, the, or demonstration can't be, can't be uh, assessed uh, by an opinion poll. Uh, if opinion polls don't get us competent presidents, they won't get us to God. So uh, the notion that somebody else knows more and you have to know more, uh, and I don't want to believe that. I, wanna, I want on my own, uh, right now, without any work, be able to say that's good or bad demonstration. Anger, sin of anger. The contemporary skeptic Michael Shermer assures us that he, a one-time evangelical, rejected God's existence because the evidence against it provided by science. And by the way, he also rejects the notion that there are persons. So he follows just exactly what we did. He said, uh, you know, it was because I saw the science, the science showed me that God doesn't exist. In his latest book, 
the believing brain, he actually reveals the real root of his rejection of God. In college, a beautiful young woman he was dating was in an accident, and as a consequence, she was paralyzed. Shermer prayed and prayed, but to no effect. Shermer is angry, and he's made a career of disproving God who didn't answer his prayers. That's a real psychological possibility. If you don't think it is, you don't know enough about human nature. Okay, we're not Spock, thank goodness. Sloth, can we doubt the effect of just plain laziness on demonstration being effective? If understanding a demonstration of God's existence takes so much effort, the slothful would rather not bother, would rather go on what he knows. Well, it doesn't look right to me, you know, and that's what would matter, but without little effort. So it would allow a kind of content with comfy agnosticism or a limp faith, that is a faith that refuses to wrestle with the deepest issues to say, oh, science can do what they want, I believe in God. You know, I'm just not, I don't, you know, I don't need that. We do have to worry about it. Lust, we don't have to go back to the Marquis de Sade for this, uh, although he was an atheist. Uh, we have Huxley's quote, but today, if you've, you know, if you've read Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, they both make it very clear, except especially Christopher Hitchens, that they don't want the existence of God getting in the way of sexual desire. They're very upfront about that, okay? That's part of it. That's part of it. The point is that there are many things that would make a person not want God to exist. And so make any demonstration of God's existence to him or her entirely ineffective, even if it was an entirely valid. Now, sometimes the sins are obvious, like the ones I just threw out there now. They're obvious. Sometimes they're not, as in this candid assertion by the first-rate philosopher. He is. He's wonderful. The agnostic Thomas Nagel, who writes in his last word, I want atheism to be true and, made, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't want to believe in God. It's that I hope there's no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That's the telling part. In other words, I want the universe to be in such a way that that won't happen. And, and I like him because he's that uh, very uh, 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 clear and honest. So notice what this allows us to do, to, to make things more complex. Uh, this section on the effect of sin as an obstacle connects to the previous section on the materialist reductionist view of nature as an obstacle. If you don't want God to exist, then you'd be far, far more likely to accept and make culturally imperial a whole and hold on to very tightly a view of nature that makes the existence of God and hence the demonstration of existence impossible. That would just make sense. It's as Nagel said, I don't want the universe to be in such a way that. And, and that's what I call the Epicurean connection uh, from the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, who literally designed the universe in such a way that God couldn't exist. Now, we've covered the most important obstacles to the proof of God's existence. So we can get to the question of proof itself. I said something above that we've got to distinguish, uh, something above about having to distinguish between a philosophic and scientific proof of something. And again, the catechism affirms that we have demonstrations of the existence of God, but the, these would be proofs for the existence of God, not in the sense of proofs in the natural sciences, but rather in the sense of converging and convincing arguments, which allow us to attain certainty about the truth. Now, this could be very, very easily misunderstood 
as implying that such philosophical proofs are entirely separate and separable from science and nature. And again, a Catholic cannot take this as allowing a kind of Manichaean or schizophrenic divide with philosophy and metaphysics on the one side and science and physics on the other and, and never the twain shall meet. So contrary to this notion, a Catholic must hold that all demonstrations of God's existence take place through his effects. That is through nature, all of nature. By the way, that doesn't mean that you're proving the existence of God as creator. It, all, all it means is much thinner than that. A necessary cause. You're not even defining cause beyond that. And since there's an analogy between causes as we know them and God as a cause, at least some analogy, you can have a valid demonstration without, without falling into the quagmire of confusing that with uh, defining a creator by demonstration. You don't have to have that problem. Therefore, when the catechism says that proofs for the existence of God are not proofs in the sense in the natural sciences, it cannot mean that these proofs have nothing at all to do with science and are entirely abstracted from nature. What would be the demonstration from his effects then? It would have no connection. It can only mean that the philosophic demonstration takes into account the best and most important discoveries in all of the sciences as necessary parts of its demonstration, even while rising above the constricted methods of demonstration any one of the, any one of the sciences and, and here's where the fists are going to fly, and correcting their materialist reductionist assumptions. That has to occur. Okay, if you don't do that, then you're taking into account a view of science which could well be defined to destroy any demonstration of the existence of God. So you have to correct for those things. So to go, and, and all that, all I'm saying there is, is that metaphysics or first philosophy has to be based on physics, that is in the grand sense of knowledge of nature. So to go back to our original question, can science demonstrate the existence of God? The answer is no and yes. That way, I get out either way. <laughs> and I'm not being schizophrenic. Don't listen to him. <laughs> Any particular science. Now, uh, uh, can science demonstrate the you know, never mind. Can science demonstrate the existence of God? The answer is no and yes. Any particular science within its own restricted methods and hence mode of proof will not prove the existence of God. A chemist as chemist won't come up with an experiment that demonstrates the existence of God in the same way that, say, Lavoisier designed an experiment to show that deflogisticated air was really oxygen. And you phlogiston people, I know, you know, just, I'm sorry I had to put that out there. It doesn't exist. Rather, any legitimate philosophical demonstration must take account of the latest discoveries in the various sciences because these necessarily contribute to our deeper understanding of nature. That is, the realm of God's effects from which the existence of God must be demonstrated. Otherwise, you're going to, you have to have some kind of rarefied metaphysics that isn't based on any kind of physics. That doesn't mean you don't correct for them, though. So it won't do uh, uh, to allow certain sciences, and, and this is, uh, um, Dr. Keebler can throw darts at me. It won't do, by the way, to allow certain sciences to show design but declare uh, others uh, off limits. That is, you can't affirm fine-tuning uh, with astronomy uh, and in physics, but deny that uh, or, or declare biology and, and, and in particular evolution off limits as, as not showing design. If God's existence can be through, proved through nature, then evolution itself, properly understood, 
would offer the most startling, convincing, astounding proofs of the existence of God. Far more compelling because it deals with things right in front of us. So how's that for a, uh, a fight starter? Okay, so, so in other words, you can't leave it off limits. You can't let what I would call pure Darwinism, but I, I distinguish between Darwinism and evolution. That's another long story. We don't have time for that. So I'd like to end by offering several promising proofs of the existence of God, uh, including the Crosby proof, uh, which I've, I've uh, named after him after he slipped me a fiver. Um, the first proof is an historical philosophical proof. These are very quick. One that plays directly in what we've, uh, we've covered above, but it's going to be controversial, uh, given what other uh, people have said. In the 19th century, a view of nature, that's why I call this historical philosophical proof. In the 19th century, a view of nature dominated that made the demonstration of the existence of God impossible. Uh, uh, the fundamentals of that view of nature were uh, themselves not demonstrated, but assumed. How they came to be assumed is a long story, which I won't take up now. The fundamentals of this view were the assumption, number one, that the universe is eternal, two, that there are only two substances, homogeneous matter and space, and three, that both matter and space are eternal, as are the laws of nature that govern the motion of matter. Those were the assumptions. Note why demonstrating the existence of God was impossible given these assumptions. Because matter and the universe were assumed to be eternal, they had no need of a cause. Notice I didn't have to say creator. Because matter and the universe were assumed to be eternal, they had no need of a cause. Because the laws of nature were eternal, they needed no explanation in terms of some intelligent being, but simply provided the source of order defining material reality. Uh, to put it in context of other people's argument, they took the place of form. So mathematical form took the place of, of form in the sense of Aristotle. Now there's no doubt from the historian's perspective that this dominant view helped accelerate the progress of secularism. That is, the belief that God doesn't exist and science shows that God doesn't exist. Science demonstrates that God doesn't exist. And that religion will be replaced by science. So now we're going to the sort of the sociological historical level. That's the effect it had. And so we have no need of a creator. In the 20th century, much to the surprise of many scientists, science itself revealed that the universe had a definite beginning and that the universe is therefore contingent. That's the important part. Matter is contingent, and the laws of nature are contingent. That is, they aren't necessary, they aren't eternal. And even stranger that the parameters, laws, and matter itself were and are finely tuned. These advances in our knowledge of nature came about through a variety of very technical experiments, none of which by themselves demonstrated the existence of God. Notice this satisfies the catechism saying that they're not as such scientific demonstrations. None of which by themselves demonstrated the existence of God, but all of which taken together and distilled by philosophers provide converging and convincing arguments that demonstrate ever more completely that an intelligent non-material being not confined by time or space exists as a necessary cause, being very careful, of the universe as we know it. Second proof, and I can actually get this done in time. They get quick as we go. This is in honor of the esteemed Dr. Crosby, uh, but actually uh, I'm, I'm just simply taking the privileged planet, which I still think is probably the most important book out there to read now. Uh, so important that I wrote a book shamelessly ripping off this, the, this, the central arguments called A Meaningful World. Uh, I didn't exactly rip them off, I got their permission. Uh, but the point of it is that it allows us to make a new kind of argument 
uh, uh, it, it combines, uh, uh, unifies three streams. First, the deep anthropic argument in astronomy and physics as extended through chemistry and biology. By that I mean that you can know the chemical elements are biocentric before there is ever biology. And you can ratchet that up to know they're anthropic as well. That is, they're particularly finely tuned for human life and intelligent human life. So I'm actually, I'm actually have more at stake. They were very humble, and I don't know any better. Uh, so they were very humble in their assertion, but that's, that's the implications of it. That's where you would go. It is heady stuff. It's a way to get my head chopped off. Number two, the catechisms, catechism on creation would be part of the stream. Three, personalism and philosophy. Uh, this is more concerned with establishing the proper grounds of science and the mode of advancing science, and hence all proofs of God's existence that depend on our understanding of nature. It's trying to reorganize and understand our, under, uh, our, our view of nature. It's summed up, at least by intimation in the catechism. This is one of the most important things in the catechism. Paragraph 364. Man, though made of body and soul, is a unity. Through his very bodily condition, he sums up in himself the elements of the material world. Through him, they are thus brought to their highest perfection and can raise their voice in praise freely given to the Creator. Notice this is a non-Cartesian, non-Manichaean, non-Gnostic type argument. It says that literally creation finds its culmination in creatures that have free will, speech, reason, and can know God. And it says elements. It doesn't say you know, metaphysical assumptions. It says elements. Uh, the argument depends on reversing the entire flow of reductionist materialism. Stop seeing things that are above only in terms of what can be said about them if you assume that on the lowest level, that was the only uh, defining reality. Now, saying the reverse, I'm going to understand, and understand things anthropically from the human being on down as well. By that, what I mean is, for example, it would take for granted that our material nature allows us to have free will. And there's something, there's a potentiality, I can use that now because now you understand, there's a potentiality in matter for a speech-making, knowing being of just pretty much the kind that we are. And I wasn't the first one to make this uh, argument. It's Michael Denton uh, made it, and he made it, he made it incredibly uh, well. So this is a reversal of things. What it does is it affirms things that you know to be true that cannot be denied by science or there's something wrong with your view of science, reason, and nature. If you know you are choosing and you know you are a material being, you got to have a view of nature that allows that to happen, okay? So it's not, it's not, it's not Manichaean. It's not saying my brain has nothing to do with my thoughts. It's saying something even weirder. The fact that I have a brain in all its complexity is something that all the lower levels allow and indeed can be brought to the point where I exist as a being really between immaterial reality and material reality. And uh, the sign is I'm bringing it all up to that peak and going a little bond. Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's a hardcore, it's so medieval, it's a hardcore new argument uh, based on the kind of argument that we would have found in privileged, uh, well we do find it because it's not expired yet, uh, privileged planet. Okay, uh, a third kind of proof. Uh, this one's obviously connected to the second, but it's, I think it stands in its own right. It's the nip it in the bud proof. 
It's kind of defensive proof, but it strikes direct, directly at a common materialist claim uh, that science demonstrates that God can exist. Simply turn it around and say, if you cannot demonstrate that you exist, then I don't care about your demonstration because you don't exist. You, you can't give me a proof. Fourth proof. This is one of the extraordinary promising uh, proof. It comes from Pope Benedict in his Regensburg address. And again, we shamelessly stole it with his permission, palling around as usual, uh, uh, out at the castle. Uh, so we uh, incorporated it into a meaningful world. It's the proof from intelligibility. And, and of course, I, I stole that from uh, uh, the notion that the, uh, uh, that, that the very good argument that occurs in, in Privileged Planet about uh, the, the way that uh, the intelligibility is related to the actual order. Uh, and the argument is, to boil it down, something like this. Science reveals that nature is deeply intelligible. Uh, even more strange, the deep, multi-layered, complex order of nature is intelligible to us. That is, the natural order is knowable to precisely those creatures who are a union of sense and intellect. As a lot of the argument in Meaningful World points to the fact that the world, that the universe on, on multiple layers is strangely knowable by creatures that use sense to know. Okay, that I, I call it a tutorial view. That deep intelligibility of nature is therefore rightly called anthropic. The surprising nature of this intelligibility to human beings as knowers is shown most vividly in the strange effectiveness of mathematics. We had our mathematics guy that wanted his to do, and I'm putting it right here. Uh, because mathematics is a, is a, a fundamentally abstract human construct, uh, the effective formulations of mathematics preceded by centuries their surprising application in physics. Okay? And the order of nature which allowed them so, to be so wonderfully in, uh, 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 effective existed prior to human beings. So you can't say any of them are caused by natural selection. Okay, the intelligibility is there prior to there ever being the, the, the thing they're intelligible to, or prior to the creatures that have the ability to make the abstract mathematics, the constructions of which precede their application by centuries. Okay, so the intelligibility is there. Well, there can't be intelligibility without intelligent cause. That is, randomness could cause one layer of intelligibility, maybe accidentally on the surface, but if you kept finding it down and down and down and down, and they were all connected to each other, like a Shakespeare play, uh, you would say that randomness couldn't be the cause. It would be the right inference, but this isn't the, this isn't the normal kind of ID inference. It's, an, it's another kind. Uh, it's what uh, uh, the Pope talked about. Uh, and, and to bring it to its finale, uh, uh, Pope Benedict said, science depends on this intelligibility. Science depends on this intelligibility, and he's right. If it weren't deeply intelligible, scientists couldn't function, okay? So the activity of science itself shows that there must be an intelligent cause of nature. So now we come back to the original question, can science demonstrate the existence of God? Well, science depends on both the inherent intelligibility of nature and the human capacity that is supremely fit to understand it. Random causes could not produce either one, let alone both nor could an inadequate view of nature. Notice I don't have to talk about randomness all the time. Randomness is highly overvalued, okay? Uh, you simply have a, a bad view of nature. So uh, materialism can't produce that. Therefore, science proves the existence of an intelligent being as the cause of both the order of nature and the capacities of human nature. It is therefore possible to prove the existence of God 
through the existence of science. Little twist, okay? It's possible to prove the existence of God through the existence of science. There you go. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.